Well, dear friends, greetings in Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us on a midweek Bible study. Moriel, we're continuing in the book of Exodus. It's not a very long chapter today, chapter 17, but it is an important, well, it's all important, but this is a very almost uniquely important chapter because of its relationship to certain things of the New Testament, which, of course, we will be highlighting today. Um, it's always difficult for me because some people are every week online, and uh, sometimes there's people who one week they will watch online, other times they'll join us here on the on the Zoom. Um, so I never know who's watching and who isn't, but greetings to everyone. Am I visible to people if I lost anybody? Because I'm not seeing anything. Let's see. Oh, yeah, yeah, there I am. Okay. Well, good. Okay. Turn with me, please, to the book of Exodus, the 17th chapter. We're up to Exodus 17. Now, I had a great time in South Africa, despite the difficulty of the place. We had some wonderful meetings with great attendance. I also just got back from Holland. We were in Holland. We did a kind of a mini conference, but we basically had to film things in Dutch with Dutch translation and Dutch subtitling for the Moriel Dutch language um, website, um, which uh, is watched by people in, in Holland, some Afrikaans people in South Africa and people in Belgium, the Flemish speakers in Belgium and certain other places. Uh, so we're doing all right. Uh, but the place that we're doing extremely well, by God's grace, now is India. The church is almost finished in Amritsar, and the absolutely marvelous, marvelous development of, of the children's orphanage that was, as you know, delayed a year and a half um, by a year and a half due to COVID restrictions placed on us by the Indian Ministry of Health, the Indian government. Um, it's all going now, and it's doing really, really well by, by God's grace. So the Lord has answered many prayers, particularly in the area area of missions. Um, but we will have a Moriel conference. I'll be coming to Ireland, Northern Ireland, in the beginning of November when I get back from the United States. We'll be in Ireland. Those dates will be announced, but it will be one meeting will certainly be at Agape Christian Fellowship in Belfast on Orangefield Crescent, as usual. Um, the other other is the Moriel Conference, which will be taking place in England. I think it's the 25th to 27th of November in England. It's booking up nicely, but there's not a whole lot of places left. I'll be joined by um, Pastor Tim Leach, and that will be held in the English Midlands. It will be held in the English Midlands, not too far from Liverpool to Manchester, not too far from Birmingham, but in the center of England, so people can get to it from all quarters of England. We, of course, had our Scottish conference already, but now we're going to have our English conference in November. And uh, please go to the Morio website, morio.org, and book with Beryl Hunter. Bookings close October 1st. Bookings close the 1st of October. We do not like turning people away, but we always seem to have to turn people away. Uh, once it gets filled up, you can only get a certain amount of places you have to notify the uh, hosting facilities how many you have, and they have to plan and so forth. And I, I really, well, none of us like turning people away, but it always seems to happen. So please book now if you would care to join us. We'd love to have you with us. 
We will be looking at the last days and certain other things from the point of view of prophecy. And I will be joined by a very, very blessed and gifted young English pastor and Bible expositor. Um, he will be joining me. Tim Leach will be joining me. Um, Moriel.org, just go there, contact Beryl, and we'll be glad to see you, happy to see you at the conference in November. The Northern Irish dates will be announced. The American dates are on the website or already coming up on the website. I'll be in Baltimore, New York, Appleton, Wisconsin, uh, Ohio, and I will be in uh, Devore, near Rancho Cucamonga, Los Angeles area, among other places. So please uh, avail yourself of of the announcements on the on the website if you're planning to join us at any of those meetings in the Midwest, in uh, the Northeast, or on the West Coast. We'd, again, be very, very happy to see you and have you join us. All right, Exodus chapter 17, water in the rock, or perhaps better, water from the rock. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and get, said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. That's how it became. They became violently angry towards Moses. After all they'd been through and after all Moses led them through, it was actually mob violence being threatened. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go, that same staff. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Maaseh and Meribah. Maaseh and Meribah. Now that has an idea of, of, of a quarrel or an argument because they quarreled and the sons of Israel because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then the first conflict, then Amalek came and fought against Israel at the Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Now, most of us have heard sermons on this that when he was praying, there would be victory when they stopped praying, which lifting up hands, holy hands in prayer is, is a demonstration of prayer. 
when they hands were down, then they would begin to lose. When the hands were up, they would begin to win. The victory always comes through prayer. But Moses' hands were heavy. Why not? He was in his 80s. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands on one side and on the other side. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. I guess uh, Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell must have been reading this. So Joseph overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner, or Yehovah Nasi. Now the modern Hebrew word for president is the same word, ensign. The word is better, ensign, Nasi. Okay. <clears throat> and the Lord, and he said, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you once again. Let these things we ponder be things that are ordained of your spirit to edify us in these days in which we live and to prepare us for serving you. In the name of the one who saved us, for your glory, Father, Jesus, Yeshua, amen. This is an important chapter from two perspectives. One, it's messianic. It has a messianic implication concerning Jesus in the New Testament, as we'll see if you've not already grasped it from Corinthians. The other, of course, is the saga of Amalek. But let's begin at the beginning, which is a good place to begin. Once again, they find themselves in a dire situation. Now, in that kind of a climate, in that picture, Death Valley, California, somewhere like that, with no water, you're talking about survivability. You're not just talking about being thirsty. You're talking about survival. You're talking about survival. The Sahara, the Arabian Desert, the Sinai, any of those things, they're like Death Valley. We're talking about survival. But this goes back. To Exodus 15, it goes back to when they left Elim, and it happens again. Every time they fail the test, they have to repeat it. Every time you and I fail a trial, we have to repeat it. We will keep going through it repeatedly, time and time again, until we learn to trust the Lord in the circumstances. Now, there's going to be a certain amount of trials for various reasons. One, we're living on enemy turf. The devil's going to attack us. Two, the Lord is going to use it to teach us to trust him and to build up our faith and enable us to encourage other younger believers during times of testing. There are reasons God allows it. There are reasons, obviously, the devil does it. There are reasons. It's character building in a sense. <coughs> it's a necessary evil, we might say. However, Let's understand something. As we know, when we fail a test, we go through it again. Now, the test here in this situation is not simply a 
individual failure. Here, the focus is more on corporate failure, when the congregation fails the test. Don't forget, churches, congregations are tested. Corporate groups are tested. Families, marriages are tested. Not just individuals. We're tested individually and we're tested corporately. And the same as an individual may fail a test, a corporate group of believers or a congregation, in this case, the congregation of Israel, may fail a test. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these things were written for the instruction of the church. They were written for the instruction of the church, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, as we've read many times. So it's not only when we as individuals fail to fail to overcome the circumstances through faith. It is when a corporate group of us fail. And as always, they react the same way. The old nature will always react the same way. Here the people kept turning on Moses and blaming him. Now remember, the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. The same people who were cheering Moses and and singing with, with the Tof Miriam in Hebrew, the tambourine, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. As soon as things got tough, they turned vilely vile in their anger towards him. Well, think about Jesus. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. A couple of days later, many of them, maybe most of them, but certainly many of them were yelling crucify him. The same people. Same people. Uh, people. Opinion can turn very quickly. And group opinion, group opinion can turn even quicker. Group, you say in, in the secular world, a week in politics is a long time. Well, it certainly is. Things can happen in the last week before an election that can determine who wins and who loses. Uh, well, that's just the way it is. That's just the way the human psyche works. What have you done for me lately? People tend to forget the the, lo the long history, and they look at the immediate circumstances. And of course, the devil knows that. The devil knows how to exploit those things for his purposes. We need to be mindful of it. We need to be very, very aware of it. Always look at the long game. When you fail something, it's going to happen again and again and again until we allow the Lord to give us the victory. We cannot gain the victory on our own. We cannot gain the victory on our own. But what we can do is prevent ourselves from being granted the victory. <laughs> we can prevent ourselves from being granted the victory. The Lord will give the victory. Only he will do that. We can't make that happen. He has to do it. It's like salvation. Nobody can earn their salvation, but they can block it. <laughs> Nobody can earn God's blessing, but they can block it. You know, or God's provision in, in dire circumstances. These things are written for our instruction. We need to learn from it. Not just as individuals, but in this particular case, from this perspective, as corporate entities as groups, as families, as fellowships, house groups, churches, whatever it may be. And so they come to Rephadim. 
No water for the, none, none. The people quarrel with Moses. Give us water that we may drink. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? You're doing it again. This is the third, this is the fourth time. But the people thirsted for water and grumbled against Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us? That's what they said the last time. That's what they said the last time before that. The flesh will always respond the same way. The flesh will always give the same standard responses. It becomes predictable. It becomes predictable. The old nature will always respond in a certain way. It becomes predictable. But when you put a lot of old natures together, you get a group dynamic, and it becomes predictable. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do? A little more and they'll stone me. They were actually going to kill him. He wasn't speaking hyperbolically. They were in danger of dying of dehydration in, in a desert. If you've been to a real desert, I don't mean the high desert in California where you've got, you know, diners with, that are air conditioned and you can stop off for some iced tea. I mean... <laughs> I mean Death Valley Desert, you know, I mean the real stuff. Okay. What shall I do? And the Lord said, pass before the people, take some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff, that same staff of authority with which you struck the Nile. Now notice, a plurality of leaders. It is an ugly situation where a pastor has to stand alone. The biblical norm is a plurality of leaders. A, there, there may be a senior leader, there may be a senior pastor, but he's only the primus inter paris, the first among equals. He may be unique, God's hand may be upon him, but he is not an autocrat. It never worked like that. There's an idea of some people call it the Moses principle. Even the Moses principle was not the Moses principle. God sent people like Jethro to advise Moses. Moses shared leadership with other people. Um, now, he was the head honcho, and he was unique in that he had a unique relationship with God, typifying Christ in the Old Testament. He saw the back of the Lord and so forth. The Lord spoke to him directly, something unique about Moses. But that doesn't happen to pastors today. That doesn't happen to pastors today. Be careful when leadership becomes a one-man show. It will become hierarchical, and in the long term, it'll become something bad. Look at Calvary Chapels. I loved Chuck Smith. He was my friend. He was a man of God. The Lord used him. And it was my appeal, and I'm not saying anything that, I'm speaking the truth in love, and I'm not saying anything to be critical or condescending. But I made it known, look, if you're going to have the Moses principle, have it. Moses trained Joshua and Caleb for years before he stepped out of the picture. In the Moses principle, you have to have an heir apparent who has been chosen by God and groomed for that. Otherwise, 
some theocratic huckster is going to take over. And that's what happened in Costa Mesa. That's what happened in Costa Mesa, California, something that never should have happened. And it was a departure from the teaching of, 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 of Chuck Smith, who was my friend in many respects. Um, there's safety and an abundance of counselors. I believe the New Testament model of leadership is plural. Now, I accept there was something unique about Moses, but even there, God never made him stand alone except when he stood before the Lord. Moses stood before the Lord alone on Mount Horeb. He stood before the Lord alone, but he was never called to stand before the people alone. A pastor, a leader, a mission director, and anything may stand before the Lord alone, but they are not called to stand before the people alone. We have to remember that. This idea, us against them, is better than us against him. <laughs> it's just a bad situation. Now, again, I have a lot of friends in Calvary chapels, and I have a lot of friends who are Calvary pastors, and I like Calvary chapels for the most part. I disagree with, with certain things, such as pre-tribulation, obviously, that most Calvaries, howbeit how not all, hold to. And I don't like the way that they deviated into things that Chuck Smith never taught or believed. But I certainly like Chuck Smith, and I appreciated the way God used Calvaries. But I knew that once Chuck went to be with the Lord, things were going to dissipate, and they have. They have to a large degree. I know many Calvary pa pastors who taken down the dove and they're disillusioned by what's become of it and what's happened at Costa Mesa. It's, it's very, very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. But that's what happens. Um, leadership is plural. There may be a first among equals. There may be a senior elder, a senior pastor. There may be that. And that has to be recognized. However, a leader stands before God alone. He does not stand before the congregation alone. We have to remember that. Okay. Let's look. Take some of the elders. Take the staff of authority in your hand. And I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Maaseh and Meribah because of the quarrel. And the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now to them it meant, is God going to give us what we want or not? Well, yeah, he is. In his way and on his time. But if you didn't keep grumbling all the time, you wouldn't have had it by now. Each time a test is failed, the next time becomes more difficult. Oh, yes, Lord, I repent. I've learned what you wanted to teach me. I got it this time. Okay. But the next time, the circumstances will always be more difficult. We have an old recorded Moriel teaching on the boats, straining at the oars and so forth. 
the second time when there was the storm-tossed Dugit, the fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee, was worse than the first time. Every time we fail a test, either individually or corporately, um, it's going to become more difficult the next time until we finally get it right. Now, we've talked about this many times. I'll only touch on it very briefly because most of you know the water that came out of the rock. This is drinkable water, potable water, okay? Water in a desert can be stagnant, like the waters of Meriba. In an oasis, an oasis, the water may be contaminated. You can't graze there. You can't give the sheep what they need there. You can't get water there. It's got to be Maim Hayim, living water, which Jesus spoke of to the woman at the well, which Jesus said was the Holy Spirit in John chapter 7, and which was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 17, the living water. It is a figure of the Holy Spirit. So while we can talk about physical sustenance and the need for H2O to survive physiologically, particularly in an environment where you can dehydrate so easily, and the dangers of heat stroke and things like this are, are no joke in the deserts, particularly in the Middle East. They are no joke at all. It's very dangerous. Okay. So we have the need for water biologically, but there is a need for water spiritually. We need the Holy Spirit. Now, we've talked about this before, where people would try to drink stagnant water, or where sheep would head for the Yamamelech, the Dead Sea, and drink salt water, that, that, that would, would, would kill them. Um, instead of going up to Ein Gedi, to the, to the cave of Ein Gedi, where the water is coming out of the rock, the sheep would just see the sea in the distance, and they head for it if the shepherds didn't keep them from it. People will go to the nearest source of water, whether it's the right water or not. We've seen this, and we have multiple teachings, with people going to Pensacola, Florida, and to Lakeland, Florida, and to Toronto, um, Canada. They go to false revivals trying to get the Holy Spirit. They go to drink stagnant water. They go to drink poison water. They go to drink salt water. They go to drink that which will kill them. They don't have the living water, but they're thirsty. And, and you see these, these buffoons in pulpits. They're just religious buffoons in pulpits. Do you want more of God? Do you want more of God? And the people were acting like crazy people. Some of them even imitating animals. Uh, you want more of God? Just this, this kind of stupidity. Well, just as people get thirsty biologically, physiologically, people get thirsty spiritually. We all want revival. But wait a minute. We're not called to pursue revival. We're called to pursue the Lord. If you pursue the Holy Spirit, if you pursue the living water, the revival is a result of that being poured out. But they seek the revival over the Holy Spirit. I believe in all the gifts of the Spirit, including the charismatic gifts understood and practiced biblically, as most of you do. But when people seek the gift above the giver, what do you have? Counterfeits. 
Tongues that are in tongues, prophecies that are in prophecies. Nonsense. Uh, what, what are they doing? They're seeking the gift above the giver. Seek the water itself. Seek the Holy Spirit himself. What results from it is God's doing. What results from it is God's doing. Jesus said, if you ask the Father, he will give you the Holy Spirit. Well, okay. Seek the Spirit. Seek the giver above the gift. Seek the Holy Spirit above the manifestation of the Spirit. Seek the kingdom and its righteousness. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of holiness. Seek the kingdom and his righteousness. Don't seek the revival. The purpose of having a revival is not to have a revival. The purpose of having a revival is so righteousness and salvation will prevail. We have to keep this very much in focus when we deal with the subject of the water, of the living water. But from where does the water come? From where does the water come? Well, it only comes from one place. Look with me, please, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 once again. Verse 4. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The Holy Spirit only comes from Jesus. Only comes from Jesus. Reject him, you're not going to have the Holy Spirit. You'll have a counterfeit spirit. Look with me, please, to Jeremiah 17, a passage many of you know. Now, there are not only liberal higher critical scholars, unsaved so-called theologians, but there are even believers who believe that John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, the introductory pericope of John 8, was not canonical, that it was added later, that it was an interpolation, that it's not in the oldest manuscripts, that it was not there originally. This is not true. Why do we know? Well, John 8 follows John 7, and there's no chapter division. John 7 was the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the Feast of the Living Water being poured out. It was against this background in John 7, where again Jesus says, whoever's thirsty, come to me, I will give it to you. And the Levitical priests had the procession up the now very well excavated stairway linking the pool of Siloam with the Temple Mount called Simcha Beta Shoiva on the great day of the feast. And the archaeology that we have now from the pool of Siloam with this festal stairway that I've been on various times, been around for about four or five years now since it's been excavated, is exactly 
exactly fits John chapter 7 like a glove. It's also exactly fits the Mishnah like a glove, and it fits the descriptions of Josephus like a glove. Liberal critics and liberal liberals, so-called theologians, don't like it when archaeology proves the Bible is true. But, but this stairway does. Uh, it's, it's a great example. And they would bring the living water up the stairway in a festival, in a procession, and they would pour it out. This is uh, the great day of the feast. Come, whoever's thirsty, come to me. Now, John 7 draws on the millennial imagery of Ezekiel 47 and a lot of other things, but it's Jesus saying, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes from him. So people say, what was Jesus writing when he knelt down right after this, when they caught the woman in adultery? Well, the morrow day, the following day, after the great day of the feast in John 7 of, Sim, of Simcha Betta Shoeva, is known as Simcha Torah, the joy of the Torah. We have a teaching called Simcha Torah. We explain it in depth, available on our website. What was he writing? Some say, well, it's showing that the same Lord who wrote the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, who wrote, Thou shalt not commit adultery, had authority and power to forgive this woman. I agree. That is true. But what was he writing? Well, it's no mystery. Let's look at Jeremiah 17, 13. The Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake thee will be put to shame. Those who turn away on the earth will be written down because they've forsaken the fountain of Maim Hayim, of living water, even the Lord. They would forsake the Messiah, Jesus, who'd give the Holy Spirit, and their names would be written down on the earth. Remember that he who's without sin cast the first stone, and the people began walking away one by one, beginning with the older? Well, he's writing their names down. He was fulfilling this messianic prophecy literally and exactly. John 8 is canonical. Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy. It was the morrow day after the great day of the feast of the living water. Those who reject the fountain of living water, the Messiah, and who turn away. Maybe we should just look at John chapter 8 very briefly. I know everybody knows this, but Maybe we should just have a quick glance at it. I can't believe, well, I can believe liberals would say anything. They say it's not even canonical. It's not even the original scripture. But I can't understand why some believers subscribe to that nonsense. Let's, well, their ignorance of the Old Testament is, is, is part of it. Let's look at this. Okay. He comes and the woman's caught in adultery, verse 4. Now, the Torah, Moses said, we have to stone her. This, of course, was a blue law. It was a law that was on the books, but was rarely enforced. Among other problems, the witnesses to her guilt could not be guilty of the same thing themselves. They were saying this in order that they might have grounds to accuse him. They didn't care about this woman. They cared about trying to set Jesus up. Okay, it's like, like, like the American... Uh, Justice Department or the FBI is, you know, that it's they're only there to set people up. They're not legitimate or anything anymore. They're just corrupt. Well, that's the way it was. That's the way they were. Okay. 
I'm not making a political commentary, by the way, but just an analogy. Okay. Jesus stooped down and wrote with his finger. And when they persisted in asking him, he is without sin. He straightened up among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he gets down a second time and writes on the ground. Now, as we explain on Simcha Beta Shoiva, I mean on uh, Simcha Torah, my apologies, he has to get down and write twice. How many times did God write the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, with his own finger? Twice, remember? It was broken, and then he had to rewrite it. So it's showing that Jesus is the same finger, the same God that wrote the Ten Commandments twice, is writing again, including thou shalt not commit it. It had to be twice. Again, I'd refer you to the teaching um, on, on, on Simcha Torah. It's on the website. It's a kind of a long teaching, but it's worth listening to if you're interested in this kind of thing particularly. And it goes on, okay? <clears throat> he stoops down again, and when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the elder. <laughs> they, they turned away from him and left. Well, that's exactly the prophecy, the Messianic prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. All who forsake thee will be put to shame. Those who turn away on the earth are going to be written down because they've forsaken the fountain of living water. You have a literal exact fulfillment of that prophecy. And I don't know why these guys with PhDs don't know it. I guess maybe some of them do. I didn't ever saw one, but I'm not, not saying there aren't any. But it, it, when I see believers buying into this nonsense, that, that the opening pericope with the woman caught in adultery is not scriptural, not canonical. It, it's nonsense. He was fulfilling the same as he fulfilled Ezekiel 47 with the living water in part. And John 7, he continues fulfilling the same prophecies about the living water. Okay? Everybody got this stuff. I'd Again, I'd refer you back to the uh, recorded teachings on the website concerning it. Okay, so the rock follows them. The rock follows them, and the rock was Christ. What is very interesting is, <clears throat> also in 1 Corinthians 3, the rock, Petra, Petra, is in the feminine. On our teaching upon this rock, we debunk the Roman Catholic lie that Peter was the rock, which was not believed by the early church fathers. Even their main Roman Catholic theologians from the early church, the two main ones, Augustine of Hippo and Jerome, who translated the, new, the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate, <coughs> neither one of them believed the rock was Christ. The consensus was, among most of them, no, no, none of them believed the rock was Peter. The consensus among most of them was the rock was Christ. Some of them said it was the faith of Peter in Christ. Most said it was Christ. But neither Augustine, their great saint, nor Jerome, their great saint, who translated their Bible into Latin, said the rock was Peter. No, the rock was Christ, and it is in the feminine. In the Greek language, like in certain other languages, 
Gender, of course, is not to do with sexual identity. It is to do with the way the construction of a word appears in a context, grammatically. And of course, we know the homosexuals have taken this and they've replaced the biological definition of gender with a grammatical one. <laughs> they, they're into the gender pronouns. You must call me a woman. You must call me a man. Otherwise, you know, you, you have to recognize me as that. Even though I'm biologically not, not that, you legally have to call me by the by the grammatical definition, not the biological one. Otherwise, how will a pervert get into the girl's locker room? You know what? <laughs> you you know what I mean. That that's how they do it. Well, it says women. I'm a woman. You have to call me a woman. I have the right to be identified as a woman. It says women's women's shower, women's laboratory, women's locker. Now this just shows you that these people don't care about women or feminism. They'll just use them the way they use black people as a political as a political football for the, to advance their own interests. They don't care about women. They don't care about homosexuals. Homosexuals even they don't care about anything. They care about power and money. They'll use that stuff and pretend they care about it, but it means nothing to them. Well, they take the grammatical definition. In the grammatical definition, however, Christ is called the Petra, not the Petros. Petros is a small chip of stone. Now, I explained this from the setting at a, a place called Banyas, Quesadilla Felipe. I'd point you to that teaching on Upon This Rock, also available on the website. Again, I go into it in great depth. And we filmed it on location. You can actually watch me speaking there uh, from Quesadilla Felipe, where it happened. I think it's still on the internet. But I read a Roman Catholic apologist who claimed to have been an evangelical Protestant at one time named Scott Hahn. I don't know how else to explain it. The man appears to be an out-and-out -out liar. He said that it says... Petros, because Peter was a male. They couldn't use the feminine for a male, Petra. In Greek, you can. In Latin, you can. In certain, in many languages, you can. He just lied. Christ is called the Petra. First Corinthians 3, he's referred to in the feminine because grammatically, Male and female and does not have to do with X and Y chromosomes, grammatically. It has to do with grammar. But that is it. The rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. And it is from him comes the living water. Only those who are in Christ can have the Holy Spirit. Only those born of the Spirit can have the Holy Spirit. What other people will have is a demonic spirit, like you have in Kundalini Yoga, or like you, you will have a, a, a spirit of murder, like you have in Radical Islam. You will have, uh, like the New Ages, you will have the Zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. You'll have another spirit counterfeiting the Holy Spirit, but you will not have the spirit of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus only comes from him. 
And although it is not our subject today, the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, but we're not going to talk about that today. Well, let's look. That's what happens. It's about the Holy Spirit. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at the Rephidim. This is their first military conflict after the Exodus. Pharaoh pursued them, but now they're going into warfare. Warfare. It was not like you've come out of Egypt, you've escaped from Pharaoh. Now we're going to the promised land and there's no fight. No. We've come out of Egypt, we're going to the promised land, and there's a lot of fights. Earlier this summer, I was spent a, a fair amount of time in Europe, particularly France, Germany, and Belgium, and a bit in Luxembourg and Holland. I was in Europe a lot earlier this, this summer that is now almost over. It'll be over with officially Labor Day next weekend. That'll be it. Then we'll be the end of the summer holiday season. And of course, I think September 23rd begins the autumn in, seasonally. But uh, we're coming to the end of the summer now, very, very closely over. In fact, it'll be over in Britain in a matter of hours almost. Um, so I was there in France. And I something I always wanted to do, but never did. I happened to be there. And I went to the Normandy beaches. I went to, to Omaha Beach and to Utah Beach. And I went to uh, Gold Beach where the Americans and British invaded and Canadians invaded Normandy. And I uh, went to the American Cemetery and so forth. And, and the battles that followed it in the hedgerows were worse than the battles of hitting the beaches. And that was very terrible, particularly Omaha Beach. But I went there to the museums and it was very interesting and things like this to see that stuff and realize the price that generation paid to stop Hitler and, and to save Britain and to stop the Holocaust and so on. So I went there, you know, and it was impressive uh, and emotive. And the French don't particularly like Americans too much a lot of the time. Well, at least the Parisians don't. But you see these American and British flags all over the place in Normandy. They, I guess it might be because of the tourists who come there, because Normandy is reliant on on these beaches. And it's funny, where you go, these these guys died in droves at, at Omaha Beach. You see people swimming and barbecuing on the same beach where all this blood was spilled. It's quite 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 a thing to see, actually. But that was it. Okay, so they fought and fought and fought and they made an advance towards Paris, finally. When they got off the beach, they went into these, these hedgerows. And then they made a, a break out of the hedgerows, and they somehow surrounded the Germans at something called uh, the Pouchet de Falais, the, 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 the pocket of Falais, like you translate it. And they had them surrounded. And the Germans began trying to escape towards Germany or toward, towards Belgium and, and towards, the, towards the east and head back towards Germany. Okay, and they pursued them. Well, it seemed like they were doing pretty good. But I was in Bastogne in Belgium and in, in Luxembourg where, where Patton is buried, the general. And I was down there. And I went to the battlefield at Bastogne where the Battle of the Bulge was. 
It was incredible. It was horrible. What happened to the 8001st Airborne and stuff like that? And the, the Nazis were getting desperate. Hitler was saying to take no prisoners. They were shooting prisoners of war. I went to where the to where a a field hospital was, and the Germans bombed the field. They shelled the field hospital, killed the wounded soldiers, and they killed killed the nurses and stuff like that. They, they were just getting more and more. They got more and more sick and depraved as the war went on. Well, finally, Patton broke the siege, and they drove the Germans back into Germany across the uh, Siegfried Line. But it was a brutal, brutal fight. Things didn't get easier. Once they got to the beaches in Normandy, it got more difficult at the hedgerows. And then when they thought they were making headway, the Germans pushed them back and tried to go all the way up to the North Sea to, to Antwerp at the Battle of the Bulge, but they, they lost. But it was a big battle and a very, very costly one. And you, again, you have another massive American cemetery. All these Americans died for Europe. Too bad they don't like us. Well, some of them do, but a lot of them don't. But anyway, I was down there, you know, it's a great, this just went on and on. And it got to the point when Hitler knew he was losing, he got more and more crazy. The Russians beat him at Stalingrad and went through Poland, and the Nazis destroyed Warsaw. And then the Russians crossed the Oder River into Germany, and the, 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 the Nazis were fighting like crazy. Well, Goebbels said, you want total war, his propaganda minister of Hitler. Their idea of total war was they began shooting V-2 rockets indiscriminately at London, not aiming at any kind of a industrial or military target, just weapons of terror. They shot them from Holland, near, near Leiden, and uh, just at London. And then they were running the ovens at the concentration camp and the gas chambers 24-7, 24-7, killing as many people, including children, as they possibly could, particularly as many Jews and also gypsies as they possibly could, because they knew they were losing. He got more and more nuts. <coughs> then they began shooting prisoners of war and shelling hospitals with wounded soldiers in it. The Nazis became more and more demonically controlled and crazy as they knew they were losing. Well, Peter tells us, Satan knowing his time is short. Satan is getting more and more and more desperate. Yes, the victory is guaranteed. No, he cannot win, but he's going to try. And he is trying. Well, it's like that. This the idea that people are now I'm saved and everything's going to be all right and I'm going to go to heaven. Well, that, that's true. But that's not to say it's an easy path to get there and that there will not be wars. We are told when we get saved, we enter a war, Paul tells us. We're, we're like Roman legionaries, we're soldiers. We are told in Ecclesiastes, there's no discharge from war. You can't get out of the war until the war is won. And so they're going through the wilderness and they're suffering food shortages and water shortages. They're parched. They're in danger of dehydration. They've got all this stuff happening to them. The last thing they need 
was a war with a formidable enemy looking to take advantage of them in their stressed circumstances. Well, that's what happened. The devil does not give up easily. Yes, they would eventually cross the Jordan, just as the Americans would cross the Rhine and the Russians would cross the Alder. That would eventually happen. It would eventually happen. But it wasn't easy. And the enemy would fight back and push back. Well, it's like any other war. It's like the Second World War. It's like any other war. It's, it was the, we're in a war. It's not always going to be easy. We are assured that we're going to have conflicts, spiritual battles. Here comes Amalek. Now we have to understand something about Of the enemies of Israel, Amalek is uniquely evil. That's not to say Pharaoh was a good guy or the Babylonians or the Assyrians were great guys. It's not to say anything good about the Canaanites or the Hittites or whoever, or certainly not the Philistines. But Amalek, Amalek was the real, real villain among villains. God is specific. I'll utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. Now look at the history. Why did King Saul find himself removed as king and under the judgment of God? What did he do? What is this bleeding of the sheep do I hear? He looked for good things in the camp of Amalek. God said, wipe it out. Don't look for anything good. Is your enemy, is your ancient enemy, and will always remain your ancient enemy. Look for nothing good among the Amalekites. Samuel the prophet comes to him, God has rejected you. Look for nothing good in Roman Catholicism. Oh, they have some good points. They claim to be against abortion and homosexuality. Not this pope. He just issued a condemnation this past week against American Roman Catholics for being too conservative on these issues. <laughs> but even otherwise, don't look for anything good in Amalek. Don't look for anything good in Talmudic Judaism. They're always going to hate Jewish believers in Jesus. Catholics may believe certain true things and, and rabbis may believe certain true things. <coughs> but they are always going to hate believing Jews. The Sanhedrin will always persecute and reject their Messiah and persecute and reject those Jews who don't reject him. Look for no good in Eastern Orthodoxy. You've even got evangelicals playing footsies with the Mormons. People who ought to know better. People who disappointed me, like Craig Blomberg and that Craig Hazen, people out of Talbot and Biola. Don't look for anything good in Amalek. There's nothing good in Jehovah's Witness. There's nothing good in false religion. But Amalek was unique. I suppose I may make a comparison between Amalek and the Roman Church. 
simply because of all the enemies of Christ and of the gospel throughout history, the Roman church has historically been the most. Howbeit, not the only one. <laughs> Don't look for good in Islam. Don't look for, you know, here in, in Britain, most Sikhs and most Hindus are quite peaceful people and they're friendly and they have no problem with Christians, so to speak. You go to India, the persecution that our people are facing in, in Punjab from radical Sikhs and some of the persecutions that have been going on in the last two months in India, we haven't suffered from the radical Hindus, but other Christians are. We've got a problem with the Sikhs right now. Oh, Mark Jackson needs prayer. There are people over there need prayer. We're building a church up, up in Enritza, but please pray about that. I don't want to talk about it too much. <clears throat> uh, there's been much opposition for many quarters. But if there is one outstanding enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been the Roman church, the Pope claiming to be the Holy Father when God is the Holy Father, the Pope claiming to be the vicar of Christ when only the Holy Spirit is the vicar of Christ. Um, well, you know my views on Romanism. Uh, again, not against Roman Catholics, but against Catholicism. Those poor people have been lied to and misled, including members of my own family. Others by Judaism, Talmudic Judaism, which is not even real Judaism. It's Rabbinism, but so it goes. Amalek, watch this bleeding of the sheep. Never look for anything good in Amalek, but Saul did. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul was, remember? David was from the tribe of Judah. But the first king was from the tribe of Benjamin. Fast forward, centuries and centuries later, the book of Esther. Who tried to wipe out the Jews? Haman. Was Haman a Persian? No. Was he a Mede? No. Was he an Assyrian? No. Was he a Babylonian? No. What was Haman? An Amalekite, also known as Agagites. Your ancient enemy will always come back to get you. They're never going to be your friend. Forget about talking about brotherhood and and and, and, and Abrahamic accords and, and, and interfaith dialogue and Peter. Forget about it. Amalek is Amalek. What happens here set the stage for what would happen to King Saul and the rise of the house of David, and it would set the stage for what would happen in the book of Esther. Haman being a major type of the Antichrist, but I don't want to go there right now. So the battle takes place against Amalek, the Amalekites who were fierce fighters. When Moses' hands were up, they won. When his hands were down, they didn't. Again, he was a, a whole man in his 80s. He needed some help. But is a type of Christ. Our victory in spiritual warfare always comes because Jesus is making intercession for us. We pray but it's his prayer the Father hears. 
The father hears our prayers for the sake of his son. That is the victory. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. Again, Joshua is another type of Christ. Jesus' name is Joshua. Yeshua from Yehoshua. That's how they said it after the Babylonian captivity. Jehovah is salvation. And his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. Write it down. I'm going to blot out the memory of Amalek. Write it down. Make sure Joshua understands it and passes it on for posterity to future generations. Write it down. Amalek is no good. Write it down. Mormonism is no good. Write it down. Islam is no good. Write it down. Roman Catholicism is no good. Write it down. False religion is no good. These are the enemies of God. And there are enemies. And Satan has them there to stop us. As I always tell people, don't take my word for it. Get a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Or get a copy of the Martyr's Mirror if you have the stomach for it and read it for yourself. Specific meaning for Amalek. But it teaches a general principle for all of us. For all of us. Okay. Very briefly, uh, in verses 8 to 13, we read about this conflict Let's look at Numbers 27, verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eliezer the priest and before the congregation and commission him in their sight. Put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him, follow him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim before the Lord. At his command, they shall go out and command, they shall come in, both he and his sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. And Moses did just as the Lord had commanded him, and took Joshua and set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him just as the Lord had spoken. This is the first time that Joshua emerges as a major figure in Israel's history. The designated heir of Moses, a type of Christ in his own right, and, of course, a military commander. 